Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. Today we are delighted to welcome Jeremy King, founder of Attest, to the podcast. Attest are making consumer research simple. It's a great conversation this one with Jeremy. He is the master of asking the right questions and there's some fascinating stuff in there for founders, investors and anyone that's working with a business to consumer product and looking to understand their target audience in a better way. So please do continue listening. So on that note, let's start the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Riding Unicorns. This week, we're thrilled to have Jeremy King, the founder of Attest, on the show. Jeremy, hi. Hi, excited to be here. So as always, we would love to start off with hearing about your journey so far and what's led you to Attest. Well, my story basically has three parts. I'm originally a scientist. I worked in what's now called synthetic biology. I worked in understanding animal behavior. I worked on mathematical modeling of how different animals interact to move around their environments and use genetic techniques to understand, measure, and train those models, which was quite fun and a bit geeky. I worked with one of the guys who was in Blue Planet 2, the guy with the fish puppets and the underwater hydrophone that looked like two footballs on a stick. And we published lots of things about the streets of Hormuz and Oman and how little reef fish move around in there. So I personally have a big love for empiricism, data, following hypotheses and threads of ideas and constantly exploring them like a scientist. And here's little bits of the test and what we stand for. I'll come back to that in a second. I then spent nine years at McKinsey, which is a big strategy consulting company. I flew around the world to lots of different weird countries and situations, trying to solve them and make them better using the power of a laptop and open questions, which was always quite entertaining. But I think in those experiences, I saw in lots of different places, businesses everywhere really struggle to know their target customer. It's easy to know your existing customers. It's easy to know how you're doing and how you're performing and to look at all your analytics and data that's coming in about your business. But what about the people you don't know? What about the people you haven't met yet? What about the consumers that aren't in your CRM and you wish they were? What about the people who don't give you feedback on your website because they're not customers and you don't know why? Everywhere I went, I saw this problem in different forms and different shapes and sizes. And as a scientist, it made me feel very unhappy. And as a McKinsey consultant, it made me think there must be a better way to solve this problem. Put those two ideas together. That's the kind of the genesis of a test. It's a personal love for data and using data to make decisions, which is something I think we all share at a test. Plus a business problem that exists everywhere to which there is no satisfactory solution. And when you put that all together, it's basically saying, the world of market research should reach everyone, not just professionals who know how to do a very complicated thing a couple of times a year. This should be something that you do every day. It should be for anyone to use it with no prior experience. If you've got a problem, you should seek data, you should seek answers. And a test exists to make that easy. So we say we want to help our clients inform every intuition and dissolve any doubt by making consumer research ridiculously easy because your target consumers hold all the answers to your burning questions. And that's what a test is. And that's my story of how we got here. But it is so little about me. It's about what we stand for and what we're doing. And that's very exciting right now. Interesting. And I, I used to work in innovation consultancy and you know we could really use something like a test. And there's the sort of graveyard of brands. I think it's called something like that, where 
big companies try and innovate new products. And the one that stands out, and I really remember, was Colgate releasing a lasagna, a frozen lasagna, which is just like the most awful decision to anyone. Anyone could have told them it wasn't going to work. And I guess you get all sorts of these kinds of products and innovation that are just completely ill thought out. And so I wonder, is, is that something you really saw at McKinsey? Or maybe you weren't doing kind of market research stuff, or maybe you were, but did you feel the need to have for something like a test in, in the jobs you were doing? Everywhere, absolutely everywhere in that there was, I mean, like, let me pick two examples, one from the past, one more recent. There was a time where I was in Chicago working in a room full of Caucasian Midwest American men who were trying to figure out how to launch a home care product targeted at Indian housewives. Only two of these gentlemen had ever left the United States. One had been to Canada and Mexico, one had been to Mexico. And they were so convinced by what they were doing. And I asked them, how do you know what these Southern Indian housewives want in their product range? How do they choose? What matters to them? What are they even cleaning or doing? What product do they use today? And the answer I got back is, we're the experts. And as a scientist, it just absolutely kills me. That's not just wrong. That's like morally illegal. Like you should be shot down from a bolt of lightning from Charles Darwin for even thinking of that. That is so wrong. It's ridiculous. And that's where you get ideas like Colgate lasagna. Like Colgate is well known for white pastes that are minty and clean your teeth. Inside lasagna is bechamel sauce, which is a white paste. Like don't do that. Like don't do that. Just anyone could have told you that was a bad idea. Like we even saw yeah. Peloton recently, the champions of brilliant marketing, premium product scarcity, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the work from home and home exercise uh, trends that we've seen in the last 18 plus months. They ran that campaign. I'm not sure if you remember it, but it was a campaign that was quite notorious now. It was very sexist. It sexualized all the people in it. And there was this huge backlash. They wiped out of that campaign and everything that came with it alone, several billion dollars off their market cap just from launching this campaign. If they just stepped outside their own building for 10 minutes and shown that ad 30 seconds to 100 people, they would have known that this backlash is coming and you are just not sensitive to it right now. Doing what I just said is as easy as walk outside your building and ask 100 people. And we believe that this should be something that everyone does all the time. And our role in the world as a tech company is to make that incredibly easy and doable for anyone. And it's quite exciting when you come across these places of kind of apocalypse and the brand graveyard that you mentioned, because that's exactly why a test exists, is to help people stop that from happening by understanding your target customers and getting their feedback, because your best guess probably isn't the best answer. Yeah. I just think it speaks to such a widespread problem about people in positions of power politics business thinking they know best and actually not representing the masses and in politics we've seen so many examples of where doing proper market research would have led to so much better decisions way better decisions than basically basing decisions on policy which affect millions of people basing them on the views of a few people sat around a table which are almost entirely unrepresentative of the of the population. So yes, yeah, super interesting in so many applications. Completely agree. Like any time that you think we have intuition, we have a bunch of things that we could do, 
but we're struggling with ones to pick or doubt about how bold to be. That's why we use those words. We know our clients who are mainly B2C companies, they have these ideas. They just don't know which ones are right. They don't know how to validate them. They don't know how far to take it. Dissolve any doubt. Should we completely change our brand? Should we make it purple in Brazil? Should we pick this idea for this market? Is our idea about how we sell to younger people, or older people, or different genders, are these right? Like, we don't know. That's why we're in that situation. So we believe that your target customers always have the answer and we just make it easy to find it out. It can be applied anywhere. And that's where, you know, the magic happens for us. Happy to talk about a few examples if that's interesting. Yeah, it's, de it's definitely interesting. Let's have them. <laughs> My favorite one recently is Valentine's Day 2021, where I'm sure we're all familiar with Bloom and Wild. For those that aren't, it's a subscription box of flowers that comes to your letterbox. And you can also buy flowers that arrive very easily and conveniently and very fresh for any occasion. We have and the founder coming on the show soon. Oh, great. Yeah. Aaron's amazing as well. Great business. So they had this idea, their brand stands for, I'm going to butcher this a bit, making the most and celebrating every occasion using flowers. But they had this intuition that red roses at Valentine's Day, like it's kind of old, it's kind of obvious. And if you want to make the best of that occasion, choosing red roses might not be the best choice. But red roses is the number one selling skew. That's the top seller for flowers at Valentine's Day. Taylor's old as time. So they had this intuition that there's a better choice and we probably should do something about it. It completely aligns with our mission and our brand values. So they ran some research and they discovered across European countries, specifically in the UK, this idea that red roses are, as a recipient of red roses, kind of a lazy choice. It's last minute. It's probably overpriced. It costs twice as much as other flowers, but it's probably worth half as much. It's unoriginal. It's a bit sad. It's a bit old school. As they also researched people who give red roses, they were like, yeah, it's, it's last minute. It's a bit sad. It's overpriced. It's also not sustainable. Like the whole red roses trade blooms up just for Valentine's Day and then it's kind of dead the rest of the year. It's actually a really terrible choice to make. And like giving and receiving, everyone's unhappy about this choice. So Bloom and Wild discovered and they informed their intuition using a test to know this. They then dissolved the doubt. How far do we take it? And they became so convinced by the data that they delisted and banned red roses at Valentine's Day. They didn't sell any. That got them year on year a four times increase in Valentine's Day period revenue and a 51% increase in share of media attention and voice. That simple move to take the number one selling SKU and stop selling it because you don't believe it should be number one. And then to take that to the extent where they don't sell it at all worked. That's what I mean by inform any intuition, dissolve any doubt. You've got ideas, add information. Turns out we were right, but in a completely different way. And the same thing does not apply in other countries. Dissolve any doubt. We have so little doubt this is the right move. We're going to ban it completely and look at the results. And that's the power of putting consumers in the heart of your decisions is that you can come across these things and boost your business. Bloom and Wild also use a test for a whole bunch of other stuff, but that was a particularly fun one in February this year. It's awesome. We should all be using a test to bust the myths that we hold, you know, and views that we hold that might be incorrect. The McKinsey expression is challenge your assumptions, but I'm pretty sure that's not trademarked. <laughs> so, Jeremy, I, I wanted to ask about, you've come from this thesis of this is how the corporate world should challenge their assumptions. How did you go from that as an idea to your first working product and who was your first customer? I, I don't know if you can name them, but like, how did you, how quickly did you go from idea to product to actually generating revenue? 
Yeah. The last bit was a bit slow, but I'll come back to that. So I kind of wanted in the early days to go about things in the exact opposite way than is generally recommended. So I wanted to compress the first two years of kind of discovery and learning and validation MVPing. I, I wanted that to be a, a short phase with two goals. A, getting a bunch of customer input as early as possible, but for it to be very objective, not in any way subjective or biased or favored towards my own view of the world. I think second was I wanted to get hold of some VC funding quickly because I knew that this would be a very difficult product to build. We make a test look like it does something very simple, but behind the scenes, it's incredibly complicated to actually deliver. Like if you break down all the little pieces and steps, they all have to hold together and look like one contiguous process. That's actually really hard to pull off. And I knew that from the very beginning. And it would be easy to build a bad product. It would be hard to build the best or a long-standing product and wanted to do the latter. So particularly early days, we did a couple of weird things. One was deliberately set out to find three groups of real clients to give us input, but also with a secret second agenda that I'll come back to. So I set out to get five people who worked in potential target clients that I knew and that I could ask about. They worked in companies like uh, American Express and Expedia, and a few others. I then went to find five people who I'd never met before, but I could get an intro to. So people who I could get access to easily, but had no prior relationship with. Just you know, adding more objectivity, but also making it easy. And I also set out to get five potential target customers who I'd never met before and had absolutely no reason to help. Because if I could get five, then there's some validation that they we're probably onto something and that's probably be the hardest to do, but I probably get the most honest feedback. They're like, oh, you're a complete time waster while you're even here. And I asked them all a couple of questions and it's, you know, core attest ideas without really sharing the idea of the business or what was going on. I asked them things like, what is the data that you wish you had today that would make them the most benefit for you this quarter or this month that you have absolutely no access to or sight of today? What is the biggest hole in your knowledge or the biggest gap in your information about the things that matter to you most? And they often talk about a whole bunch of random stuff. They talk about, I wish I knew more about my supply chain or I wish I knew more about competitors. And then we started to get into competitors specifically about why do people choose X over Y? We've never figured it out. And like, how do I take my product and sell more to older people? We're really good at these demographics. We're really bad in these two. Everything we've tried, every idea we've come up with, it doesn't work. These consistent themes started coming up and these became the sort of core ideas behind a test, like unlocking this information and putting consumers where you have right now nothing. That is sort of part of the core ideas of what the test product and proposition became. But it came from this fundamental understanding of the data people were missing and what they wanted to get. And then went back to those same 15 people, all for different reasons and different times, and said, okay, how would you want to receive this data? Let's now say that this is possible. And here are probably the top five things we're going to focus on. How would you want to receive this data? What would, where does it go wrong? Where, why wouldn't you use it? What, what would stop you from believing it, stop you from sharing it and sort of trying to understand the barriers. Again, understanding the problem, not the solution, showing the concept, but not the product. In the background, we were building product and building prototypes and kind of testing it against this sort of set of input. But by design, a bit like a science experiment, building these three different groups of input to give us different levels of objectivity and familiarity 
and to focus on the problems. And that gave us really, really fast track product input and proposition input really, really early on. The other thing, and they'll probably kill me, but I got those um, companies to then call a bunch of investors and say, please, can you invest in this company so that it can exist, that I can buy their products? And that helped us solve the problem around, this is gonna be a very difficult and expensive product to build. And therefore I knew I needed to get some investment money very early. And that's exactly what happened. So all these clients said, you know, if these people can do this impossible thing, it's gonna be a very valuable business and I'm lining up to be a customer. I think all but one of those initial 15 potential clients did that. And then that 15th client actually became a client in reality down the line, which is nice. So it became clearer onto something. We got really valuable feedback from a mix of different sources and then tried to crack the next problem, which was like actually building the product to make it real and solving the stage gates that would slow it down as early as possible. And that was a very deliberate approach to the first two or three months of the company to do those two actions and to defeat those two problems that would cost us five years or a whole bunch of trial and error interesting and in those early days how did you navigate that complexity of the product you know for most people embarking on this they're probably thinking like holy shit this is this is a biggie were you in charge of product and were you just hammering out sketches thinking like how does everything connect here what was that kind of approach so we built some prototypes and mvps sort of more on the functionality angle just to try and figure out some of the overall problems so things like user journeys, as opposed to specific designs or nomenclature about specific features and prioritization of features or aspects of the, of the functionality. We came across the problem very early on that everyone has a fear of doing market research. It's daunting. As you think about how to do it, people tense up. Like no one, not even research professionals, claim that they know how to write the right questions. Nobody has ever claimed to be able to write the right questions. That does not exist. But everyone we speak to, particularly in early days, says, I don't know how to write the right questions. The real answer is nobody does. There is no right question. It's like picking the right pass in football or cooking the perfect meal. There is no perfect meal. It's completely subjective. And it comes down to the seasonality, the ingredients, as much as who is the diner and who is the chef. Like, it's crazy. So we came across these problems and we were testing more ways to defeat those problems. So like to remove the stigma of research is difficult or hard to do, to break assumptions about how research has worked in the past. So, you know, one of them really early on, we discovered that people think research is something that you set and forget. Like you have to say, we're going to run a project. We're going to achieve this very specific outcome. We have to wait three to six months for that to happen. And I really hope that one, we set out in the right direction and two, it's still useful when we get to the destination. Those two things are just wrong. That's just so unhelpful. Wait three to six months to get the data and hope that it's still useful at the end. The modern world does not work that way. Guess where you need to end up and blindly embark on the journey? Again, the world doesn't work that way. As a scientist, things should be more iterative. You should discover, you should adapt as you go. Like experiments methodology means you probably completely trash the first experiment you come up with and you know burn it all down day two, something, try something completely different. With every person we met had assumptions about how research and data and insights about consumers worked. And it turned out none of them had to be true, which is kind of a great gift to build a new SaaS product, which is actually, all the rules need to be reinvented and broken, not just 
we're going to reinvent and break the rules and see what happens. Like it was remarkably consistent. And all of this turned into the test we have today. The one thing we didn't do, going back to your question earlier, James, is get to revenue quickly. Like we had a long and tortuous period where we were just building product and we had lots of kind of gravity and expectation from early shareholders that like, hmm, maybe having some revenue would be useful. How about that, huh? Like you might wanna do that. Like, did you know that real businesses make money? not just spend money, whoops. So we tried to stay true to building something that was scalable for the long term and that you know truly solved some of these big gaps and that built on all the feedback that we've got. And it took a lot longer than I thought. There were a few moments afterwards that showed us we we're on the right path and that you know some big choices we made that got it right. But the first 18 months are very slow to like gather all this feedback, turn it into first types, start to charge for things. But because it's so complex, it was, necessarily slow and deep down we kind of knew it was going to be that way all along and jeremy you've made a career of asking the right questions and this might be really difficult to do but i think if anyone can do it you can do it what is the one question that founders should be asking themselves internally at the start of their journey it's the genuine one that comes to mind is what would it take for them to care about this as much as I do? And that applies to the them is potential clients, potential investors, potential people joining the company. What does it take for them to care about this as much as I do? In that if you can get clients to care as much as you do, that is great. But what does it take for them to get there? That will tell you more about pricing and product and proposition than you ever thought of before. What will it take for investors to care as much as you do? That will give you investment, but more importantly, it will give you belief in the long term as well as the short term. And what it takes for investors to care, you probably have to jump through a number of hoops and sort of big, bold investor type questions and burdens of proof to prove to them and yourself that you're on the right lines. What does it take for new prospective employees or team members to join the company and care as much as you do? Here comes all of the things you need to answer around culture and values and proposition and compensation or things like that. Like if you're constantly trying to put yourself in the people who you need to come with you on the journey's shoes and ask, what does it take for them to care as much as I do about them, this challenge, this company, then you are always honing in on the critical path of what is going to cause you to succeed. And I think this question leads you to the point where you know more about that with every passing moment. Amazing. Amazing bit of advice. That's really interesting. Just to sort of double click on the employees part, what do you think it does take to get them to really care about this problem and therefore be great employees? I think here it's really important to be authentic because, you know, you could easily take people on a wild goose chase and tell them what you think they want to hear. But a much better version of that is to tell them what you really believe and get them to choose to join in. So massive war for talent now, massive war for talent in early days of a test as well. So we wanted people who were prepared to join an earlier stage company because they believed in the upside of the opportunity, they believed in what they could learn along the way, they believed in the upside of the equity, and they believed that it would be fun chant to address the challenge. That's kind of the four things we were looking for. But the manifestation of that is very different for a you know, back-end or infrastructure engineer versus our first designer or, or marketing hire, like completely different motivation behind the scene. But if we can create consistency and continuity of why people care about the company and alignment of interest in what they're hoping to achieve and what being part of a test can do for them as well as what they can do for a test, 
I think that's where this becomes very important. So hence why the question, what does it take for them to care as much about the company as I do? It's things like belief in the long-term vision. It's things like belief that working on this will be helpful for my career and my interests too. And that's where we get full alignment of interests. I'm all in on everyone's doing the same thing, but doing that in an authentic way means that you naturally have a team that is set up to all be on the same page and all move in the right direction, as opposed to if you cobble together a bunch of mercenaries, it doesn't take a lot for it to fall apart very quickly. When you ask questions like that internally, and you get the output, where does that then go? Does it go into things like brand Bibles and employee handbooks? What is sort of documentation are you creating off the back of asking these really penetrating questions about your own business? Generally turns into two things. For me personally, this is highly subjective and therefore probably not recommended. It turns into a new set of actions linked to solving some of the problems or opportunities that those types of questions uncover. What does it take to get prospective new team members to care about a test as much as I do? Like, oh, we need an ESOP and an EMI plan to make sure that when we give an answer around your equity ownership in the company, we give you the best possible answer that has all the best things attached to it, as well as a level of belief. What does it take to get prospective clients to care about tests as much as I do? It leads you to all sorts of assumptions about how to motivate those 15 people I mentioned to give us early product feedback and also to get them to do the next level things like meet with us for many hours rather than just one to call investors and say, please invest in this product so it can exist so I can buy it to convince them that they're a beneficiary and that they're part of the journey as opposed to please give us an hour of your time and an input. Very different proposition. So I think those types of things cause you to challenge your assumptions and lead you to one, actions, and then two, places where you write these things down and they become consistent. That is things like articulation of culture, which we haven't really ever changed, articulation of mission and vision. The second part of that is starting to turn those things into documentation and documentation so that there's sort of a single point of reference so that we know what we're doing but also continuity of planning and execution and that was manifested early days for me and things I was talking about with investors things we were talking about with team members things we were talking about with clients and prototyping and these turn into very quickly product strategy company strategy investor proposition employee value proposition but all of these ideas come from the same places and it's the things that you believe in what you're trying to do why people should care about it as much as you do and taking actions and then writing bits down so that you can build upon it sounds simple but that was the key early on brilliant and jeremy you've had a lot of success with fundraising over the years and you've talked a bit about how you got those initial investors on board you paid your mates to call them up and tell them how great the product was. Wow. <laughs> wow. We, even if that was true, that would only be a third of what happened. Uh, let, me, let, me immediately, let me immediately say that isn't what happened, but even if it was true, it would only be one third, as you remember. Yeah. So, so then after those very early rounds, how did you go about fundraising and what were the difficulties and, and big wins that you saw? And maybe just tell, tell our listeners what your fundraising journey has been. I know you've raised tens of millions already. Yeah, so we've raised a total of about 100 million over five rounds in six and a half years. We talk most about the things that were difficult. So one is nobody really likes or wants to like market research. Everyone in 2015-16 loved big data and MarTech. It would have been very easy to say we're a big data or MarTech company. We aren't. 
in 2017-18, it would have been very easy to say something, 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 AI, something, 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 value. A whole bunch of companies did that and have done really well with it. We use machine learning, we use aspects of artificial intelligence in our product, but we aren't AI for AI's sake. So, you know, it was difficult to avoid the temptation of saying, we're the flavor of the month, please give us your money. The other thing was market research and the problem we solve, everyone's familiar with it. It's a bit like, you know, everyone thinks they can run a restaurant, you know, make the food, have front of house, have back of house, have a menu, it's cool, it'll be really fun, we'll have cocktails, it'd be amazing. But we all know that most restaurants completely bomb and it's a great way to lose loads of money and end up with lots of secondhand kitchen equipment you're trying to sell. Everyone has an appreciation about the problem we're trying to solve, but everyone has their own unique aspect to it. And no one really knows how it works, including us. So being in quite an unsexy industry and then trying to completely challenge every assumption about it and reform how it works, nobody was looking for a company doing that. So we were nowhere near the radar and certainly not particularly sexy. And those were always challenges. The gifts that work in our favor and the way that we defeated those things was by one, B2B SaaS is not sexy, but having a very large total addressable market is. Trying to expand that market to new buyers and having a unique way to do that, that's very interesting and sexy. Suddenly we're talking about things that aren't cool, you know, we aren't Deliveroo, but we do have a much larger market than Deliveroo. There's also no one in it. Even today, 92.2% of the time, we're competing against nobody. We don't really compete against anyone for over 90% of our deals. That is really interesting and very attractive for us as a company, for me as a founder, but also for investors. Like if you can crack this and if you completely fail, it's still going to be a multi-billion dollar company. And like, I genuinely mean that because it is actually true. We could completely screw it up and still be ridiculously large as a business. And these are kind of things that work in our favor. So I think the key early on was understanding what are strengths, what are weaknesses, how to unpick the weaknesses, how to really build the strengths, not just in investors' eyes, but more as to what we're actually doing, and then hope that investors will recognize that. And the investors that do recognize that are the ones that are our cap table today, and the ones that didn't, we probably didn't do a particularly good job of convincing them. <laughs> um, and somewhere in the middle is five rounds and a bunch of money. But as I always say, raising money is not an outcome. Doing something with that money and turning it into returns for the company, returns for shareholders, but more importantly, value for clients and completing our mission and vision, that's the key. And as long as we always try to stay true to that, I think funding will always follow. Yeah, well, I think that's a great thing to kind of end on. I mean, we just sort of scratched the surface, really, and I'm sure we could ask many more questions and dive a lot deeper. But we always like to wrap things up by getting our guests, ideal three sort of dinner party guests. So who might that be for you? Wow. I'm going to go with four in that I've thought about this before. So, you know, there's expanding the market right there. I hope catering covers four. If not, we can share. In no particular order, I've got Charles Darwin, Shaq, Marie Curie, and Warren Buffett. Just the idea of hearing what Charles Darwin and Marie Curie talk about, because you know they had a bit of overlap, but when Marie Curie was far too young, just like for Darwin to understand from Marie Curie what happened next and how she broke so many aspects of 
how the world works. She went to an underground university in Poland that was secret and didn't exist. She's still the only person ever, male or female, to win a Nobel Prize in two different sciences. Her meeting Darwin would be amazing. Darwin seeing where she could take science and breaking all the rules, that would be fascinating. Hearing Shaq explain economics to Charles Darwin and then getting Warren Buffett to explain the kind of capitalist elements of that, that would be amazing. Hearing Shaq ask questions to Marie Curie about her early research and like what it took to break down the different barriers that she broke down, but more what getting Warren Buffett to share with Marie Curie what her legacy became, that would be amazing. And then getting Charles Darwin and Warren Buffett to debate modern capitalism and what has happened since Darwin died and also how Buffett is both complicit but also a force for good within it. That would be very interesting. And I think between those four people, language is going to be an issue here as well. <laughs> so I'm just immediately assuming that everyone's got a babel fish in their ears and they can just understand each other. That would be interesting. What they chose to eat, that would be great. Darwin lived on ships and sailed around the Galapagos. So, you know, pretty much anything would be good. Buffett famously only eats hamburgers and drinks <laughs> all fat Coke and sees candies and other various terrible things. So like, is everyone going to have that? Shaq is famous for tipping thousands of dollars in restaurants if he gets really good service and he gets the waiter to write their own tip. Um, James, we'll, we'll be doing the catering, won't we? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> in a heartbeat <laughs> if those four are there, for sure. And, and what Marie Curie would make of everything I just said, her interpretation of all these other people, why they exist, what's happening, and what is the world we live in now, that would be amazing to learn from too. I think I was going to ask you, yeah, I was going to ask you what your position is on this. Are you, are you taking an observer, observer seat or um, do you have some yeah. strong views you want to impose on them? I'd love to join in, but I cannot say that yeah. I deserve a seat at that table. I would love just to be in the room and have to be the water guy. I feel like you could just moderate, but you just ask one question and it would just open up everything. Yeah. <laughs> then you just sit back and let it, um, let it yeah. go. Jack, that's so interesting. But what would it take to get them to care as much as you do about that? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> just that, would, that would be quite fun. But I think in there we've got a mixture of different times, different understandings, different rule breaking, different eras, different views of different periods of time, but they're also linked together. And this is happening in the present day, but they're all at their peak moment. And I think it would just be amazing. But every time I think about that, it, what they eat, but what are they wearing? What's the first thing they say to each other? What order do they speak in? What's the kind of yeah. hierarchy? Darwin was notoriously kind of an introvert and that's why his ideas took a long time to kind of land and stick. There was a guy called Louis Agassiz who was a creationist and you know the exact opponent to Darwin who was much more popular at the time because he was basically like Jimmy Carr, like everyone loved him. <laughs> And they wanted to listen to him talk. And what he was saying was the opposite of Darwin. Whereas Darwin was much more like Jeremy Paxman. Like it's a bit dry. Yeah. Most people aren't watching that most of the time. So it's got to be, it's, it's got to be one of the most interesting things because these huge characters from history, we kind of have a tendency to think of them as extrovert and, you know, great orators and all of these things. But actually, you know, the reality is not, is not necessarily that. So yeah, seeing the dynamic would be interesting. Yeah. And even... You know, what is the most surprising thing to each of them? That would be amazing. I could guess, but guessing is exactly, stopping guessing exactly. <laughs> scratch that, scratch that. <laughs> In all guessing, please. Therefore, I will not guess. And Jeremy, if there was a company out there or companies that you wanted to work with, 
what types of businesses should be buying a test right now and where should they go? The test is for anyone in any B2C business who wishes they knew more about their target customers and would be better off if they did. So often that's people who work in marketing, product, pricing, strategy, innovation, understanding competitor moves, entering a new country, figuring out which product to launch. These are the problems where getting input from the customers who will decide whether you win or lose would be useful. So it's pretty much anyone to do with revenue in any B2C business. And it tends to be people who work in marketing, brand, product, pricing, strategy, things like that. You can find us at askatest.com or just Google the test and we'll come up. You can also try our product for free. You can run through a real survey with real consumers and you will definitely learn something new. And that will happen the same day. It takes about 90 seconds to set it up and you will learn something new that is free and you can just try it. Have a go. It's You will definitely learn something new about something and it's on you to figure out what is the most interesting thing you want to learn about and a test will magically take care of the rest. Companies who are small and fast moving like Klarna, Manscaped, Attaco Brands, Mallow and Marsh use a test for all sorts of things. Big companies use a test to understand how 30 different European markets feel differently about the thing they're trying to launch and that 20 of those markets good to go, five of them some major adaptations to make and five of them apocalypse is coming and we need to start again. Learning that this week rather than over the course of the next two years is very useful and that's what a test is here for. So whenever you find yourself guessing, think of us. Brilliant. We should do one for the podcast, James, perhaps. What would you research about the podcast? The difficult thing is is knowing our own listeners better and, and a test wouldn't do that. But, you know, hearing about what people want from a business podcast, you know, I, I haven't really thought, to be honest. How would sure we make our listeners care as much as we do? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that, there we go. There we go. <laughs> um, we, we we care a lot about the early stage uk tech ecosystem tech generally you know encouraging more people to come and work in tech and you know all these types of things founding businesses how they can learn to do that and launch companies raise money so we need to hopefully inspire people to care as much as we do well we have a bunch of investors who use a test vcs private equity sovereign wealth funds and they use a test for when they meet a company that has lots of bold claims about what's happening in industry, they cross-check those claims. Like you, you're saying that these markets really want your product. We're just going to cross-check that because this could be a $500 million mistake we're about to write. They also use a test to understand trends. So let's pick an example, food trends. What is the company that should exist within the food trends that doesn't today? And let's start throwing out some propositions. And now here we're kind of scanning the ecosystem and the landscape and the trends constantly just to look for opportunity and to see things others don't and then for also helping their portfolio companies like when you come across a big challenge and you're trying to grow more revenue or win more customers knowing more about those customers is a great way to help your portfolio so like investors use a test for these exact problems so there might be something fun to do in the podcast around exploring a trend for a UK tech company that should exist but doesn't and then trying to fabricate exactly what that would look like and what it would take to make it real that would be quite fun yeah and then we could act as the the founder (laughs) yeah might want to hold that end of wraps for two years while you build a company then then release the podcast maybe you've already done that (laughs) (laughs) yeah we've got a few things up our sleeve Jeremy it's been a pleasure to have you on the show it's always a pleasure to chat 
love your good humour. It's been very fun. And yeah, brilliant hearing how you're bringing data-driven decisions to the world and you know your journey with the test, the, the ups and the downs. It's been really brilliant to chat and I'm sure the listeners are going to love this episode. So thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Fun to chat. Always a pleasure and see you soon. Thanks for listening to Riding Unicorns. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. If you want to receive episodes direct to your inbox, go to ridingunicorns.substack.com and subscribe on there as well. See you next time.